Hello everyone and welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. Today is October 27th, 2016. I'd like to go a little bit off script if you don't mind today, Michael, because there's so much going on right now. We have the president of the Philippines finally visiting here. Well, he's, he, it's, it's strange. You could say that he's, he's been restrained and at the same time, he's continued to mouth off about the United States, which is probably not the best thing to do coming out of China mm -hmm. and coming to Japan, which, which is the strongest US ally in the region. He seems to be playing the field, doesn't he? He seems to be playing every field. And of course, as a leader of a, a sovereign nation, that's entirely cool. Mm -hmm. uh, and if the, the Philippines wants to be in some kind of triangulation position, so be it. It, it is indeed in the middle of the ocean. It has countries on either side that it wants to deal with, also to the north with Japan, all on an equal basis. Okay. The Philippine community is just ecstatic about his visit to Tokyo. Well, I don't know if they're ecstatic, but, they're, but they're, anything that brings the Philippines back on the map it makes it uh, is good for the Philippine mm -hmm. community here. Nevertheless, you would have to think that a lot of them are more conservative and much more allied with the United States, so that his brand of Philippine nationalism is kind of a challenge. I saw him on TV the other day talking with the Prime Minister and sitting next to the Prime Minister, the Vice Prime Minister, uh, Minister uh, Aso, mm -hmm. and um, I was taken, I was struck by the fact that he really flaunts his hang lucidness. His, his tie was askew, his jacket was open, he was kind of bobbing and weaving. And I thought, um, boy, this, you can really tell that he's a, he's a provincial kind of guy. Mm -hmm. um, he's, he really hasn't been on the, the global scene, and, and you can see these things coming out in the, um, in the open. Well, he, he, whether that's an act, whether, what he's like in person, uh, hard to say, but certainly he plays it as hard as he can. And there was, of course, this minor controversy or this minus, minor fear among protocol experts here. Is he going to be chewing gum when he right. meets the emperor yes. during this state visit the way he was chewing gum when he met Xi Jinping? Uh, it seems to have gone okay. And, and everybody was on tender hooks. Will he behave with the emperor? Mm -hmm. So he's a, it, he seems to be a professional politician and he seems to know what he's doing. Mm -hmm. What he's doing, however, uh, is going to require a constant effort and constant balancing act, which is really contrary to really what you want to do most of the time, which is you want to minimize the amount of contact and the amount of thinking that you have to mm -hmm. do. He, he's decided to make, to be an active player, going this way, going that way, but that's exhausting and it, it requires constant, well, manipulation and constant uh, adjustment. And it can bite you in the ass. Yeah, it can, uh, but in the, he knows, and most of the world knows, that you can you know, kick the shins of the United States and the United States will stay there. Right. The United States commitments are very long-term, especially its strategic commitments, and the Philippines are in a strategic location. Right. I, I apologize for the hodgepodge nature of this. There's a lot of things to talk about. Typically on Tokyo on Fire, we try and have four episodes. I don't know if we'll be able to do that today, but there has been a death in the imperial family, and that's an important thing that we can't devote actually a segment to, but it, it, it bears talking about. Yeah, just as we were filming, the news came out that Prince Mikasa uh, Takahito has passed away. Now, okay, so it's he was just 100 years old. He certainly had a full and, and, and lengthy life, and for the most part in good health, though he, he did die in hospital. 
However, what this means is that the already tiny imperial family is ever smaller. We're yeah. down to now to 19 members and four heirs to the throne. Four male, because under the laws there are, on, there are only male heirs. There are only four individuals who are now eligible for the chrysanthemum throne. So the death of Prince Mikasa, the younger brother of, of Hiroshito, is according to the plans of nature, mm -hmm. but nevertheless, for the con continuity of the imperial family, a big deal. This bears actually a segment, I think, maybe next week we should spend, you know, 10 or 15 minutes actually getting into the imperial system and what's going on with the imperial household agency and the prime minister's office on the um, abdication proposed by the emperor. Yeah, that committee is meeting and it's a very strange situation where Virtually none of the members of the committee that are supposed to provide suggestions on what the government should do regarding mm -hmm. the imperial household law, none of them are constitutional experts, none of them are legal experts, and none of them are experts on the imperial family itself. We have an, an Arabist, we have a... Not a, a qualification. Yeah, apparently. Uh, apparently. Uh, we, ha we have uh, the, a former newscaster. It's It was a list of the usual suspects, but none of them having any spe special knowledge of mm -hmm. the, the, the situation or the, the uh, questions at hand. We, yeah, we have to talk about right. that. But isn't that somehow how things get done here? You select a committee, the committee, whatever their composition or their qualifications are, comes up with a recommendation and everybody else down the line kind of rubber stamps it. Yeah, well, the, that committee, of course, is fed by the bureaucracy. The bureaucracy cooks everything ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And you have a meeting to basically talk about what was told to you to have in the meeting. That's right. And mm -hmm. then, then you go and present your report to the, to not the emperor, but to the prime minister at the Kante, the photograph is taken, and it's, you actually may have had very little input into what mm -hmm. is in the report, but it's done. We went through all of the forms and voila, here we have the reform to the law, whatever it's going to be. The timing, Sometime next year, mm -hmm. late, they look at the extraordinary session next year as, as probably a date when this abdication, and it looks like a one-time only abdication uh, ad amendment will be done. Okay. Let's spend some time talking about that perhaps in our, our next uh, filming series next week. Maybe. Um, finally, I'd like to talk about one of the largest holidays in Japan. It's right upon us. Oh, we're, here we are at the end of October, and it's the traditional Japanese festival of... Halloween! That's very strange. How it did is, that happen? I, it is very strange. But if you live in Tokyo, as, as you and I have, this holiday, this, this festival, this American creation has morphed into probably the biggest city party that Tokyo has. Well, it's certainly not. We, well, you can talk about the New Year's celebrations, the traditional New Year's celebrations as being a big party. But in terms of young people uh, getting together, it's become part of the calendar. Halloween. In the it's same huge. way that you ha have the summer fireworks festivals and then you all young people dress up in yukata and pair off there. Well, we now have this, well, it's mostly young adults mm -hmm. associated, uh, not children, uh, with trick-or-treating. Right. Uh, this young adults dress-up party that in some cases gets a little out of hand. Right. For viewers that are unfamiliar with the 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 progeny of this. Let's talk just a little bit about how it started and just over the last couple of years, how it's exploded and created some real problems for the police. Well, the thing is that it's a, that it's a police problem is probably the first question you say, how is it a police problem? Well, it's because it's, it's 
the origins of the wildness mm-hmm. uh, are in what you could call civil disobedience. Right. And that was, I guess it must have been primarily Americans, but you never know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're, uh, the these foreigners getting on the Yamanote line. Right. Well, initially, I believe it started with a lot of soldiers coming down from, from perhaps Fuji on Halloween, going to Roppongi, but just having a wild time during the Halloween season, getting dressed up, you know, just acting up and riding the train and just staying on the train, letting the train ride. It's about an hour and a half uh, loop of around the city and doors would open people would come in they'd be dressed up they'd be drinking on the trains creating a commotion i don't know exactly what the timing is uh, of the of the entire loop but yeah they would stay on and people would complain and therefore there was it became news at the same time uh, certain cities started having parades for halloween mm-hmm. and they were small scale affairs often involving the foreign community but it's now been incepted into the national calendar. Right. And it's now a part of the economic planning of, of all kinds of, of uh, consumer goods come out in their Halloween forms. You know, bakeries have their Halloween baked goods, but the items that you would not associate with the American festival mm-hmm. are decked up in jack-o'-lanterns and painted black and all these different things that, so that it's really become a Japanese festival. Mm-hmm. And it's within the last 10 years, basically. So it's sort of on the same pattern that set up Valentine's Day here in Japan, which then begat White Day and then Mm -hmm. begat all kinds of other romantic uh, stories. Japanese culture is moving. It is moving and it is morphing. I mean, it really is fun on Halloween. Probably this year it'll occur on, on a Saturday night as usual. Halloween actually falls on a Monday. But Groups, and, and the Japanese love to travel and, and drink in groups, groups of, of you know, middle class, middle aged, you know, even college students dressed up in themes, uh, parading out all over town. Uh, Shibuya is a favorite target and, and the police presence in Shibuya is just massive. Uh, you, we were talking about this. You said that they've already set up the barriers. <clears throat> they've already set up uh, police barriers and a traffic flow because in the scramble, the the most populated, densely populated uh, intersections. They stand there. They stay there <laughs> and party <laughs> and everybody's got masks. So who are you going to catch? Who are you going to uh, arrest? You, you in the, in the Trump mask. <laughs> Get out of the, the crossing. Yeah, the, yeah the, the, but the, they also have developed one of the, the, the interesting things is the how to deal with crowds, <clears throat> special police officers who are trained in being hip. Right. <laughs> so that, okay, people, get out of the crossing, uh-huh. that, that, which is not, you know, sarcasm and, and, and slight edge is not something that's generally taught in Japanese police academies. Right. Well, I was at the scramble last year during Halloween, and they would have lines of police with a rope. And then when it came time, they would just corral and they would pull the rope and pull people out like you're doing sign fishing mm-hmm. and pull them back towards the... Um, the other side of the, the uh, intersection, and then the, the traffic would flow on again. Well, we'll see what they're going to do this year. It looks like it's going to be even more popular than it was last year, and certainly it's a part of the calendar. Right, rain's predicted. Please stay tuned. These kinds of things always strike our radar. They're interesting. We'd like to go into them in a little bit more depth, but we'll save that for later. Please stay tuned. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. Today is October 27th, 
2016, the LDP escaped a bullet this last weekend in two by-elections. Michael, this is pretty big news. Well, it was, it's big news in that they, they got past what was looking like a really embarrassing, possibly embarrassing situation, mm -hmm. where the LDP, because of internal dissension, would blow it and hand over two of its in own both, seats. In both constituencies. They in both have, the they constituencies, the Tokyo uh, the District 10 and the, and the Fukuoka District 6, that in, in what should be shoe-in by-elections, that they would blow it because the, they could not agree properly on a proper LDP candidate, mm -hmm. a single one. They managed to dodge a bullet. In both cases, they're probably breathing sighs of relief. The onus is now on the, the Democratic Party, which was supposedly given, gifted this situation in both districts of LDP in disarray right. and couldn't take advantage mm -hmm. of it. We talked about this last week. We spent a, a bit of time lining up the election, and now the election has been had, and there are a lot of things that we can learn from how the, the Democratic Party followed through on this and also how, uh, you know, Ms. Koike maneuvered her candidate to win by a significant margin. Well, let's talk first about the DP okay. and, what, and what falls out. True to what we would normally predict is that when turnout is low, the DP craters. And that's exactly what happened right. in both cases. Not because of rain. Not because of rain. They, they had good weather. They had, they had time to prepare, all these things. Nevertheless, voters did not show up. They and weren't motivated. They weren't motivated by a, a, dis, a disorganized and, and wild race, which normally tends to kick up uh, participation. In both cases, record low mm -hmm. uh, voting rates, which should anybody who does politics should immediately say, well, then the DP is going to lose. And they did. Right. Uh, and it made it look as though the LDP candidate won in a landslide. Well, no. The they L just didn't lose. They didn't lose. Right. And they didn't lose. And they got a lot of votes, but they're machine votes. They, those people would show up right. no matter what. It was the non-aligned voter was not excited by the race and didn't show up. So DP lost. For the new head of the DP, Ren Ho, of course it's an embarrassment, but they didn't put a lot of energy into it. They, in fact, they, they didn't actually know what they were going to do with those particular seats. And that was particularly painful in terms of figuring out how to work on the four-party alliance. Which is, it really kind of was a test. I mean, it's a follow-up test. They did this in Niigata. They came out okay. Yeah, but they did a completely different, a complete 180 on this one. They went from complete unified alliance, we're all in on it, uh, we're all on, in favor of the candidate, to in the case of these two by-elections, they said, okay, you and the other three parties don't run your own candidate. You guys hold off. You hold off. And we won't invite you to any of our That's campaign right. rallies. Thank you for the offer for the endorsement, but we're okay. We're okay. We're cool. We're cool. Um, and you can endorse if you want, but don't show up at our rallies. And we won't show up at yours. Uh, and <laughs> the, the term that came out of it was chuto hampa, uh, mm -hmm. half-assed yep. cooperation. Uh, and that's a technical term, half-assed. And that is exactly not the way right. that the House of Councilors was run. That's not the way the Niigata election was won. And in both those cases, the strategy worked. Now, whether Renho's enemies, well, actually, who are enemies of her Secretary General, Noda Yoshihiko. Uh, internal. Internal enemies. Her frenemies. Her frenemies. Right. Uh, try to work on this and by doing so, weaken the, LD, the, the DP in 
in the run-up to the next elections, you know. They just don't have much time. I mean, they should have gotten their S together because this was a trial for them. And a a snap election could happen within the next 90 days. If the secretariat of the the DP does get its act together, it can argue against the conservatives in the party, look, we did it your way. Mm-hmm. We did it, we were standoffish towards the communists because we, we, we didn't want to be associated with, with them and we got absolutely kicked in the butt. Mm-hmm. If we want to be competitive right now, we have to work totally through the alliance. Now, whether that will, will indeed fly internally within the DP is a, a question that's up in the air. But definitely they can make that case at least because they did get their butts kicked mm-hmm. in this election. Renho is still safe though, wouldn't you say? I would say so. But then we have the issue of Koike. Right. And she comes out of this with tremendous momentum. She dragged her candidate into the position in the Tokyo 10 electoral district who himself ran against the LDP as an LDP member. And now she's got a whole new ball game. In addition to winning the governorship, she's now looking like a party leader. Right. She she actually announced she's going to have a school for diplomacy and uh, public policy. And it's going to open by the end of the month, but before Halloween or maybe even on Halloween. Uh, and it's got 4,000 plus applicants uh-huh. already uh, who if, if there are more than 4,000 people who want to pay you money, that means you have the nexus, you have the central core of a party. <clears throat> and certainly a lot of those applicants are people who are looking at least running as members of a party that's going to put candidates in the local party election, the local assembly elections in the spring, but maybe even into a called election, general election, right. in January. Yes. So th- this this is snowballing for her. No, it's snowballing in a very good way. We, not part of this segment, but also with regard to the Olympics and the parceling out of Olympic um, sports sites. There's a lot of stuff going on there. She's 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 doing she's she's juggling so many different things right now. Koike is first. She's got. The, the Toyosu Skiji problem, which we've and talked about on this program. And she's got everybody back on their heels, the on people that, that were involved in it. And, and, and the bureaucracy so. and former governors, they're all backpedaling. Now she's got her new juku, her, her school for politics. Mm-hmm. And then in the center of it, she has, well, she's basically dictating to the International Olympic Committee, we're going to do this and we're not, we're not going to do right. that. And the International Olympic Committee itself is, is, is on, back on its heels what are we going to do about this person who had nothing to do with the process, who has no idea of how we came to where we are, and is now reneging on every single promise that the, the candidate city, Tokyo, made? Well, they had a big forum. This is going off subject, but they had a big forum just last week. And my in- interpretation was that they were welcoming this kind of revisit because um, it looks like they were hoodwinked. Well, they were certainly hoodwinked, but they're always hoodwinked. They, 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 are, they are serially being fooled by uh, various c- committees that present them with, with bids. Certainly in the case of Sochi, certainly in the case of Athens, mm-hmm. the bids were completely off kilter and had nothing to do with the actual costs of what was going, sure. to, going, to, going down. Yeah. Easy pickings. They're, they're, they're easy to fool. Okay, but she's on a roll, isn't she? She's on a roll, and the thing is, they don't know how to adjust to that. They want to have their own kind of Olympics with their own kind of rules, and they, they're an international organization mm-hmm. that is simply 
most of the time running rampant and, and just a muck and gets to do whatever it wants. With her, however, she she has basically has them in shackles and she can dictate to yep. them. Now, they're throwing out all kinds of crazy ideas, including taking events out out of the country. To Seoul. Not to Seoul, but to, to South Korea. But to South Korea. That's in the latest, I, I mean, in terms of messaging, it's brilliant, you know. We, it's well, that bad. Yeah, yes. you, know, you guys, you guys are so out of, out of unprepared and, and 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 so unwilling to spend money. We'll give it to the Koreans. <laughs> oh man, you want to you want to you want to push the pendulum to the other side? That's a good way. It's a great way of doing it, and they certainly have. They have to. They've forced a little bit of Tokyo. Wait, 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 wait. You can't do that. Right. We we were thinking of sending the rowing events up, up north, to, up north to Miyagi, and 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 cloaking it in the part. I've always hated this as a part of the bid that it's for the re renewal and the revival of the Tohoku region. Mm -hmm. It's a Tokyo Olympics, let's be real. But now if we send a lot of events up there, yes, it is true. Mm -hmm. But that the Olympic Committee has immediately tried to shut that down. Well, Tokyo won the bid because they promised, they they committed to having a rather compact Olympics Physically centered around, compact, yeah. centered around the Tokyo Harbor. Yeah, and- Five, uh, five mile, Radius. Yeah, and that's and no kidding. If you're going to hold an Olympics in a place which has some of the highest real estate values in the world, it's going to cost you. Mm -hmm. And if you have some of the highest labor costs in the world, it's going to cost you. It's a it's the price of doing business. And yet, Koike coming in has has this idea, and maybe it's good populist thinking, but it, it's it's not terribly good, I think, in the long term. That you know, we'll, no, we won't do this. No, we mm -hmm. won't do that. We won't spend this money. We don't spend that money because, well, you know, I'm sorry, but this is one of the wealthiest cities in the world, right? And it committed to holding the Olympics, and whatever it costs is what it costs, right? Well, even the IOC president said that this is an opportunity for Japan to show magnificence, and that's what happened in the '64 Olympics. Japan leaped into the 21st century and. And the the ability of the Olympics because of the te television and the the broadcasting and you know, buying televisions and that sort of thing, it really engaged the Japanese economy to take off into the the incredible bubble that it eventually ended. You know, twenty years ago. Well, the thing is that the, that that you you touch upon the most important part in that there is the 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 competition between Tokyo and the IOC is a sideshow. The real show is between the national government and the Tokyo government. Right. And how much Tokyo can charge to the national government and how much the dynamic between Koike and Prime Minister Abe is played upon. Right. Abe and Koike both appeared together. As friends, it As seemed. friends, it's, sure. And, and work, and since they are both longtime hardcore nationalists, they have an, a, a similar base. Uh, she is, however, presenting the, a challenge to to him and to the LDP with this new party. Of course, the people who will suffer the most is the DP, mm -hmm. as they suffered when Hashimoto Toru created his innovation party in 2012. It's very much the same story, that there's an outsider who is charismatic, conservative, hard on the teachers' union, etc., mm -hmm. you know, hard with with strong anti-foreign elements, if not anti-foreign views. Uh, we've seen this before, and it, 
it can have, at least for one election, a huge impact. I mean, the, the numbers when that the first time that the that Hashimoto Toru took his movement national, the the LDP got 16 million votes, but Innovation got 12, and then the DPJ at the time got 8 million in the national election in, in 2012. So she can, in very short time, post a challenge right. that can really shake up the entire political scene. Right. Well, I think those numbers tell you that the Japanese population is hungry for some sort of revitalization, some sort of change, and any, any new flavor that comes in, Hey, let's try that one. Let's try that one. And and they this one not, looks pretty good to me. They were not offered new flavors in the two by elections, and people just didn't show up. Mm-hmm. Offer a new flavor, and you're talking about a new ball game. Right. Let's talk just to to wrap this up about Wakasa. He was the beneficiary here, wasn't he? He was. He he. And it looks as though all the LDP members who were online for either resign or you will be thrown out that that's not going to happen to them. Instead, uh, the LDP is dealing with this issue that it it's going to have members who are attracted to Koike. Mm-hmm. And it has to, at some point, it's probably going to have to deal with it in January, have some kind of litmus test. Are you with us or not? Right. And that's going to impact the relationships between local chapters and the national organization. The national organization doesn't really care about Koike that much. The local organizations do because the, she she stomped on the Tokyo local organization mm-hmm. in order to present her candidacy. She's stomping on anybody that she gets that gets in her her way. And there are politicians who are opportunists who see her as the new new sure. end, right. and they're going to follow her. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be presenting a lot of problems to both of the major established parties, right. A lot of complicated mathematics going on here. Please stay tuned. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. Today is October 27th, 2016. On Monday, the Japanese received terrific news. One more Nobel laureate was announced, Dr. Yoshinori Osumi, a physiologist. Nancy, what do you think about this terrific news? It's big deal in Japan. Actually, the way they look at the Nobel laureates, almost like a sport competition. It's on TV. They, they're waiting for it. Right, right. Uh, that's very differently played in other countries, in particular in the U.S. And I think it's a part of Japan's nation brand mm-hmm. to really value science, uh, the emphasis they put on research and technology. But when you dig a little deeper, it appears that a lot of the research has taken place perhaps decades before, and there's some worry about going forward if they will have younger researchers uh, being able to win these prizes because universities are having to cut some of their R&D and aren't able to hire researchers due to the decline in the student population mm-hmm. in part. But the real, the person I am uh, delighted with was the uh, previous Nobel laureate. The 2014. One, right. And he's my favorite maverick of the week. And that would be Shuji Nakamura, who spoke recently at the Foreign Correspondents Club of Japan. I he has a bit it. of a bee in his bonnet, doesn't he? He does. And he he really is focused on the, the fact that uh, despite his win, there are a lot of entrenched problems in Japan having to do with uh, not enough emphasis on publication in English, 
uh, that the Japanese economy, he thinks, should just collapse and that they need to start all over <laughs> again. Of course, he had to sue in, in order to get compensated because originally, I guess, the, the recipients law, right. were getting $10,000 and the Even Japanese- 10,000 yen. 10,000 yen. Which is 100 bucks. Oh, that's awful. Yes, I've got 10,000 no. yen in my purse right now. He has plenty to, to complain about, obviously. <laughs> he does. And of course, he, he fled the country. He became a U.S. citizen. He's now at UC Santa Barbara. Right. And he's got a great sense of humor because he said on the benefits of winning a Nobel Prize, he doesn't have to teach anymore. He has a parking space. And he is at the University of California, though, having lived in California that's its own bonus. Right. <laughs> but I just love that he he's really sort of taken it to them, and, and he's in a position to do so. Mm -hmm. And um, as a researcher, non-scientific social science researcher, I think that uh, in terms of womenomics, we need to see more women coming into the fore here because women researchers uh, are in the low, like 12, 13% overall of, of research faculty at universities. And I didn't realize that until 10 years ago, they didn't even have tenure track at the Japanese university. So the Japanese universities have been run very differently mm -hmm. than what is normally the track that one takes to be lauded in the end. So, But the, but Nobel prizes help in all things having to do with that. It helps in order to attract children mm -hmm. to studying science. Mm -hmm. It helps Talk, it allows the, uh, the professors to talk to bureaucrats and politicians and say, this is what we need to change in order to get more out of our universities. Mm -hmm. So the Nobel Prizes for Japan are, yes, they're, they're great in terms of PR, right. in terms of country branding, mm. but internally, they're great for education. They're great for new and in innovative programs at universities. That, and also, it, 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 there have not been yet Nobel Prize winners who are women, right? And that is something that is the next step, I mm -hmm. think, for in this entire process. Well, and who was the woman they were talking about as being on track, possibly to get a Nobel? Was the one who ended up being involved in the controversy around uh, doctoring some of the data? Oh, that's right. right. That's true. Mm -hmm. Wasn't there talk about her that oh, this could be if the discovery that she announced was actually replicable? Yes. Yeah. But That's it was, right. but it wasn't, and you're yeah. right that that was that it. It was more like an op-ed research <laughs> <laughs> platform. Well, she certainly did make it hard, and in certainly by by making it extremely feminine. You remember she would not wear a lab coat; she would wear a hapogi, right. and and, and uh, all these bizarre things. She had characters on on her research equipment and all this these unnecessary things. That's true. And mm -hmm. her supervisor committed suicide. That's right. right. Who is yeah. this uh, lady? I've forgotten her name. Anyway, um, I'm not sure. Okay. We won't. We won't, we won't go okay. into that. But I, I think that's great, though. If you can have more dialogue between university professors mm -hmm. and universities in general and the government, because there are a lot of problems at the university. The foreign faculty numbers are few, and then we also, I know from working at a university, if you don't have command of the language, you're not really hired for that. Right. You often get all of your communication mm -hmm. in Japanese. So they don't really have in place this bilingual, this sort of welcoming kind well, it's of It's not even onboarding. bilingual. It's, it's world English. That's right. The term that's that right. you use. Exactly. And, and I think that's entirely global yeah. English, which is 
right. the language of international academia, right. international business, that yeah. you have to, to work in that. Sure. I mean, when we, when we go to our various meetings here in Tokyo, the European nations could, of course, insist on having their meetings in German or their mm -hmm. meetings in French, but they don't mm -hmm. right. because it's global English. Right, right. right. I could handle the German, by the way. <laughs> Give me a good German beer and I get much more fluent. So. You had a few just before this filming, didn't no, you? No, 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 no. That deny, deny. Okay. I've got my coffee right here. <laughs> One of the things I like about Professor Osumi is that he has been toiling away for 28 years. He is your typical quintessential otaku. He's mm. just, he's into his, his thing. And he's been doing it unobserved, unannounced until just recently. And he's made some really incredible discoveries about uh, how yeast cells interact with each other. And of course, I cannot identify with that toiling away anywhere in obscurity for 28 yeah. years. So I really hand it to him. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also that it's an argument that pure science matters. Uh, he, he started out as did most of the uh, researchers, not thinking about the commercial implications. And that's, mm -hmm. uh, that's a break with the way science is usually run right. here. Applied science is very much funded, very much pursued, uh, the pursuit of patents, but simply pure science just trying to work out what, why something works the way uh -huh. it does. Uh, sure, there are big government projects such as the one that resulted in the physics prizes, uh, where you have an enormous, the, the, the Kamiokande uh, facility that, that requires governments to be involved. But in, in most of the time in Japan, you want to do science, you're going to do corporate science, mm -hmm. science that's applied. Well, what's the deal here? I mean, uh, for such a long period of time since the Nobel Prize was first um, created, uh, the Japanese were almost non-existent. And then just over the last 20 years, we've got to, what, 22 uh, it's Nobel It's the laureates. water, it's I'm the, sure. <laughs> well, there's, there's certainly also a national pride issue at hand. Mm. I mean, you can certainly see every time a Japanese name has been announced, and, the, and it's been several years in a row now, that there has been at least one Japanese researcher, if not at, mm -hmm. at times three of them at once. You, you know that they're looking immediately and they say, Hi, Beijing. Where are yours? Yes, that's true. <laughs> Where are right. your noblists? Uh -huh. And there's certainly a great deal of national pride in that as mm -hmm. well. And you know, to his point about science for science sake, it right. got me thinking about when I worked at the U.S. Information Agency, a cultural affairs agency, and we were asked, this was during the Clinton administration in the 90s, during the big push for NAFTA, to link everything we did culturally to some type of commercial mm -hmm. interests because the U.S. wanted to engage in the newly democratizing countries of the, the former right. Soviet Union and other countries as well in Latin America and elsewhere. And I felt the way the Nobel recipient feels in the sense that why not culture for its own sake? Why do we have to tie it so often to commercial corporate ends? Because mm -hmm. he's a great example of having that payoff at the end, but he worries that if it's all commercial, then it, people can kind of get maybe a little bit sloppy and away from some of the fundamentals of, of science. Mm -hmm. So I just thought of that analogy is that we're kind of quick to look at the profit angle. And if you link it to the fact that the Japanese government wants to get all the profit in the end, I know it does have to do a lot with national pride. My understanding is 
there are more patents awarded to Japan. Is it the highest in the not world? Any, not anymore, but it, okay. at one time it certainly was one right. of their goals. Mm-hmm. So during the downturn, the so-called lost decades, they can say, yeah, but look at how strong we are in the sciences. The worry, though, is that there are some surveys of young people who are not showing the same interest right. in science. And these are recent surveys where they just don't have the excitement towards science the way that neighboring countries have. So you, you really have got to wonder where the next generation will come. Right. But then that's, that's what makes the current crop of noblists so important for right. Japan in the long term because they're all mentors. That's mm-hmm. right. And it, it becomes very clear that if you learn from these mentors, you will be on a track. And, and many of the, the most recent uh, recipients point back to previous Nobelists and say, it's because of so-and-so in the background, mm-hmm. in the past, that I was able. Or persons who were eligible for the Nobel who passed away before being mm. awarded. So that the lineages within Japan's academic community are being carried on, and that bodes well for Japan in the future, I think. Maybe so. I mean, yeah. it could be characteristic that these uh, Nobel laureates for the Japanese are part of the baby boom, and they're tapering off, and the doldrums that the Japanese are in now, just they don't have the energy or the insight or the motivation to pursue these kinds of activities as you know their fathers or their uncles did. Well, that's certainly that, 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 that's one argument you could make, but you can also say that Japan has a really deep bench, and it's getting deeper. Even though the number of young people it has shrunk by half. Mm-hmm. The number of people who go to college now has doubled over that same period of time. So you have, still have that same college educated, then ready to go into possibly into graduate school pool that it's that it's had over the last thirty years, and that's good going forward. Right, right. But you do have to ask yourself why are young people maybe turning away from the sciences when there's so many more opportunities now in the so-called hard sciences than in my social sciences. Mm-hmm. So for instance, for women and minorities, STEM is so big now, and uh, technology, science, education, you can get major fellowships and scholarships if you are part of underrepresented uh, populations. So I just in wonder- the In the United States. Okay, in no. the US, but yeah, Japan is a different case. There's, Although, there's, there's no, there, I can assure you that there's no advancement for women or for- Koreans. In general, exactly. Yeah. Yes, I know all too well. But uh, I think that things are changing, of course, politically. So will there be that kind of trickle-down mm-hmm. effect that if women see uh, women in positions of power politically, then maybe they'll they'll say, hey, I can do this. Because mm-hmm. sometimes I think it's just a matter of, do you have the self-confidence? Could you have a mentor, a male mentor, really inspire a young woman to say, hey, yeah, I've got the, the brains to do this. I, I'm reminded of Larry Summers years ago, the Harvard University professor who got in some hot water when he was making a speech and he sort he of alluded to, that's time. right, president of Harvard at the time. And he was saying that we know that women's brains are maybe not as suited for the sciences and, and mathematics, maybe. Um, now, of course, he pulled that back later and, and said, you got to look him. at the whole speech. <laughs> but uh, as the daughter of a scientist in applied scientists and engineering, I I wish that I could have had that chance to do it all over again mm-hmm. because 
just the having visited OIST last fall, the Okinawa uh, Graduate School Institute for Science and Technology, sort of an MIT-like university, it was there that I was so inspired by these international scholars, including many women mm -hmm. from around the world. So there's a lot of really wonderful things happening in science. And it's one area where I think, in a way, we can see the peaceful uses of that science, that it doesn't always have to go toward building bombs. Sure. Or, and that comes up with your, your op-ed. That's right. right. I did an op-ed about uh, the Manhattan Project, talk about scientists, and uh, they, they were putting the best minds, including Albert Einstein, toward building the atomic bombs. Your piece bombs. appeared in the yes. Japan Times. That's where it is. And, yeah. uh, I, you know, this was on the heels of this marketing conference, the World Business Conference on World Peace at, in Hiroshima. And since Japan is known so strongly in science and technology, uh, do we want it to really go in the direction of more peaceful means and to use that peace brand right. in the service of society? The internet came out of science research. So, mm -hmm. so much uh, we've really benefited from as end users and our smartphones. All of this is science. Right. And so I, I just hope that there will be more young people to really embrace this field. Mm -hmm. The fellow that uh, we talked about earlier, uh, the professor in uh, Santa Barbara, Dr. Nakamura, uh, he created with uh, two other people the, the diode that produces a, a, a light using very little electricity, and he feels like he was burned. He challenged that. No pun intended. No, right? no pun intended. <laughs> he, he challenged that. He did get a payout, and the first thing he did was he left Japan. And now from his position there, he can throw stones at, at the Japanese, and he is doing that, but he becomes something of an unwanted gadfly as, yes, a, as exactly. a result of that. You mentioned the fellow who wrote Straight Jacket Society mm. in a, an episode or two ago, uh, Dr. Snow. And I think the same thing happens to those kinds of people who point out the obvious flaws in the system and the way things are done and become kind of pariahs as a Well, if you're, if you're going to point them out, you have to be proactive. You have to offer something that is positive because you don't want to just be critical for its own sake to make yourself... That gadfly, as right. you said, that's somebody who can clear a room because people sort of roll their eyes and say, okay, what's he going to throw at us now? But in his position, I, again, I love that he's so refreshingly kind of non-Japanese, maybe in his way, but he has taken it to a bit of an extreme, even becoming a U.S. citizen. Right. I was so intrigued by that. Right. Japan's latest Nobel laureate, Dr. Yoshinori Osumi. Will it help younger Japanese get into the sciences? Please stay tuned.